Glass listeners, I'm Andy White, Looking Glass Ensemble member and Director of Community Engagement, and welcome back to The Infinite Room, a little space in which Looking Glass imagines big things. Now, Looking Glass has always used little spaces for our bigger imaginings, from our humblest storefront on 13th Street to our current larger but not huge room in the Water Tower Waterworks Pumping Station. We create vast worlds into which we invite and immerse you, lush, saturated landscapes and soundscapes that capture or evoke the much, much bigger world around us. We are not short of ambition. And sometimes that ambition leads us to take on big issues. Indeed, often the big issues of our time or times 1989's Of One Blood had the ghosts of three murdered civil rights workers challenging a contemporary audience as to what their bloody sacrifice had gained. 1990's The Jungle gave bloody, visceral life to the factory conditions that turned humans, like the pigs and cows they butchered, into mere assembly line byproduct. In 1993's In the Eye of the Beholder, a young woman navigates the journey from grade school classroom to adulthood picking her way across the landmine-strewn landscape of gender expectations, sexual harassment, and the continual fear of assault. The production that opened the new theater on Michigan Avenue was an adaptation of Studs Terkel's Race, How Blacks and Whites Think and Feel About the American Obsession. That one's pretty self-explanatory. Trust exposed the vulnerability of teenage girls being groomed by internet predators. Plantation was a hilarious look at reparations, and yes, that's a true sentence. Beyond Caring immersed audiences in the invisible lives of temporary laborers working in Chicago factories without any protections or, for that matter, even awareness of the general public. And most recently, Her Honor Jane Byrne took a fresh look at the intersection of public housing, race, and mayoral politics. These are just some examples of Looking Glass's rich history of tackling the pressing issues of our day. But did any of these plays, does any play ever, change anything? Did even Hamilton, certainly one of the most influential plays of our era, arguably the landmark production of this generation, did it change anything? The people who saw it, sure, we've all left the theater feeling impacted, in tears, our hearts profoundly moved, that's why we go. But does that result in any other broader social, societal change? Do plays ever result in a change of policy? What actual impact can theater have on the world in which we live? Well, with me to answer those questions definitively, well, no, not really, but at least to toss them around a bit, are Looking Glass Ensemble member David Schwimmer and writer, director, and theater maker Alexander Zeldin. David is a co-founding member of Looking Glass. He has been in and or directed a bunch of shows for the company, including most of those I just mentioned, and has a few other credits of note, some of them having to do with television and film, apparently. Alexander Zeldin is a writer and director who has created theater in London, Egypt, Russia, South Korea, Italy, and Chicago, among other places. He has worked as an assistant director to the legendary Peter Brook. His trilogy of plays, Beyond Caring, Love, and Faith, Hope, and Charity, are marked by what The Guardian magazine calls a stress on the resilience and humor of those left behind. Beyond Caring had its world premiere at the Yard Theater before transferring to the National Theater in 2015. Soon afterwards, Alex came to Chicago to workshop and direct the 2017 production at Looking Glass. First of all, thank you so much, both of you, for entering the Infinite Room. Watch your step. <laughs> how did you two meet, or how did yeah? How did your two? How did your paths cross? 
David just kept stalking me. It was really awkward. And, uh... <laughs> no, it's actually a lovely story. Why don't you tell it? Because it involves someone that you, it was very, very important for you, that was a wonderful, wonderful woman. Well, my mother-in-law, who, uh, Jenny Buckman, who's, who's now uh, passed, um, saw Alex's play Beyond Caring at the Yard Theatre um, and thought it was one of the most uh, important plays she'd seen in years. And Alex, what did she do at the end of it? Oh, she she just got up and was uh, you know shouting at the at the and saying fuck them, <laughs> it's not right. And it was it was an amazing amazing uh, reaction um, that she she had. It was yeah, she's she's um, she was head of acting at RADA for over twenty years and a writer, a playwright and director herself. And and she said I, I have to. She told me I had to go see this play. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it in person because I I live in the states, but I tracked down um, Alex's agent and I asked if he could put me in touch with Alex and if I get a copy of the play and basically yeah Alex is right I stalked him and then um, soon after I read the play and watched the video of it I I was I was determined to get him to adapt it for the states because I thought uh, the circumstances of the of the play about were even, well, I don't want to say even more relevant. No, they but, were. They are. But, it's, it's, it's insane how, how, how much it, it worked in the US. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, for the, the lives and circumstances of temp workers in the States, um, I thought it would be a great, a great uh, play for the company to do. And luckily, he, um, uh, he came out for an, an initial visit and uh, we did a bit of recon. We met Tim at you know, Chicago Workers Collaborative. We met Isaura that trip and interviewed her, who then later, a year later, came into rehearsals and Alex had Isaura kind of direct the actors at one point. It was incredible. Definitely um, highlight of the process was yeah. Isaura directing and me getting to sit on the side, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's how we, we met now. How long ago? Five, six years ago? Five, six years ago, yeah. 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 Where does your sense of um, wanting to do something to better the world come from, personally? And where did you get the theory or the belief that theater could be an effective change agent, could actually help achieve that change? Where did that, what were formative experiences for you um, on either front? Schwim? I, I think my early experiences, my earliest experience is some fuzzy memory of my mom as a political activist and one of the leaders of the feminist movement in Los Angeles back in the 70s and being on not only picket lines but seeing um, political theater that she was also acting in. And I don't remember what it was about, really. I, I don't have a clear memory of the story. But I remember the feeling of that audience and being part of that audience and it being charged in a way um, that was quite passionate and impassioned. I remember, and I don't know when this was, but I saw some production of a Clifford Odette's play called Waiting for Lefty that 
was, you know, it was about a, a, a strike, you know, a, a union deciding to strike. And again, I had that similar experience of plays, you know, being political and charged and with a kind of mission of activism. But I think more than anything, I, I, I just, f I feel like this idea of theater as an agent of change, potentially being an agent of change, I think it was more intuitive than anything else. I mean, I just remember feeling as an audience member, I, I remember feeling changed when I was seeing some different parts of kinds of theater in different plays and, and different musicals. And, and I, th I think it was more intuitive and logical to me thinking, well, if, if this is changing me and, and inspiring me and motivating me, then surely, you know, we can do the same uh, with uh, another story or another piece of theater. So for me, it was, I think, more intuitive than, than anything planned or um, intentional starting out. Yeah, I really uh, respond to what you said, David, about, you know, feeling yourself changed. Because I think that that's one of the wonderful things that the theatre can do, sort of miracle, actually, that it can give an objective, a form, if you will, to a subjective personal experience. And it can, it can give human form or rhythm or image situation that can be shared by a group of people, a society. And what's remarkable is that that society of strangers that, of course, is a kind of micro version of the bigger world, you know, all the world's a stage and all that, that if everybody in that moment is feeling themselves somehow more alive, simply moved, the feeling of dignity, of justice, of sympathy. Sympathy means, is an activation of an essential moral kind of quality, um, is, is, is inevitable. And, and from that comes, comes a renewed awareness of the value of life. Uh, so for me, you know, the, I always say this. I've just done three plays that describe pretty contemporary situations that are people always say they're political plays and I'm always saying they're not because I don't want to be hemmed in I think all theatre theatre by its very essence is it by what I've just described it's as its its form is political in the sense that it's the polis it's the group of people coming together to see them to see life with a new intensity I mean for me the, the if you want to identify a moment since that's your question I'm not going to be as eloquent as either of you, but I did have a very clear... So I went, to, I went to Edinburgh Festival when I was, I guess, 18. And I remember seeing this show with, from Czech Republic. Uh, and it was sort of about refugees, basically. But it was, it was a kind of mime show. And the only thing I remember is I was amazed. I've never seen anything like it. I grew up in sort of provincial England, that was all quite classical theatre. And this was the first sort of really... Maybe I was 17 or something. It was the first sort of, uh, I guess, absurd kind of drama that I'd seen or sort of stylized performance. And it was um, these, these, these kids, they were students. They were suddenly des describing the indignity of being a, an exile by being in a suitcase. And they popped out of the suitcases in a completely different state, exhausted and broken, 
but they were carrying each other around in suitcases for a period of time. And such a basic image of people just being luggage and cargo. But it, 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 it amazed my 17-year-old self, and it showed me reality in a new light. Because I think of the way that you work, Alex, as being quite different from a standard American rehearsal process, can you just talk a little bit about it, especially for those who may be listening who don't know anything about it and about the particular way that you work? And, and I, I won't actually try and describe it because I'll do it poorly. But I know that you do a great deal of research and a great deal of really immersion into the world that you are attempting to portray. And I, I guess I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the why of that and where that comes from and and what it looks like or feels like. Yeah, I mean, it kind of links to the first thing that you got us to talk about. I mean, like, so if theatre is for a society to see itself, as it were. I mean, the, the origin of the word theatre, as I say every single time I do any kind of interview, I realise, as my girlfriend keeps making fun of me, uh, is, is seeing place. Uh, theatron. It means, literally, it means seeing place. So, so you know, I, I, what I do know uh, from experience is that theatre can be of use, theatrical work, can, has to be, a, has to be a, a way of helping us to see life more clearly, more fully, more intensely. And actually, I think that it's a way of people from... It's a way of conducting, I guess, what you could call radical experiments with difference. And that's to say, I love to work with people who are, have got no relationship to the theatre profession and to bring them into the process. So, for instance, for Beyond Caring, you know, that, that went through a long process of bringing in, working with cleaners and factory workers. But also, for me, it's very important that the actors and myself, that we go out of our own comfort zone and that we're in environments and we're participating in, we're, we're working and improvising often in character in situations that are not, um, that are not theatrical in it, as it were that we're, I think basically, I think you kind of have to break theater and the habits of theater to actually get to what theater really is. Theater has become too used to its own comforts. You turn off the lights, you sit in the chair, you chill out, and the world is on stage, and it's not really your world. This is nonsense, because the history of theater is, was never like this. It was always a, a, an extremely confrontational, essential form of social um, and intimate and spiritual knowledge. And so to bring it back to its origins, as it were, you kind of need to shake off the way that the conventions... You're right. We've, you know, we've we've constructed that fourth wall quite rigidly, um, so that as spectators we often feel quite safe just watching the thing that's over there. And I think when I think about the production of Beyond Caring, as soon as you walked into the theater, that that was disrupted. That was eradicated. Actually, you'd walk into the theater, you'd enter onto you know the our facsimile of a factory floor. So you were immediately complicit in a way, or. Um, or part of the environment at a minimum um, as soon as as soon as you entered the theater and I think right if I do I recall correctly too that the lights um, the way we went into that I can't remember if the actors entered with house lights up yeah I mean I tend to leave the house lights up the whole way through yeah that's quite important because I mean the reason for that is is actually that we just when I first started making these shows there was no money for theater lights so we just didn't have any need for them but then after what i mean it sort of became a conviction of mine that why should we separate the audience it's about us so surely we should all see each other and also you know you're getting an actor to do these quite extreme things you know it's quite important that the audience uh, gets seen as well they also need to be seen they also are part of the event that's going on they shouldn't be 
removed from it. And that, that could happen whether the show is completely in the dark. <laughs> but the, the, but at least the language that I felt was necessary for me was this this breaking of any kind of expectation. Also for the actors, because as an actor, when you're on stage and the lights are on, there's a kind of, I mean, you both could, could imagine that. And I think David and I, have, you know, we've worked a bit together now in that capacity as well. There's a kind of, there's a, I, I don't want you to feel that you're, you're safe. I don't, want, I don't think safety is very helpful, actually, for this theatre. David, um, speaking of the audience, what Alex is saying really resonates, I think, with both of us in terms of how we've thought about American audiences typically tend to be of a certain class, uh, often a certain race and certain age bracket. You know, theater audiences in America are of a certain demographic, dominated, not exclusively, but they're largely. And I, I, I wonder how we disrupt that, or do you have thoughts about how, how we approach that? Yeah, Alex and I have spoken about this a bit, um, about the challenge of making theater that is truly accessible to all which is part of the Looking Glass mission. Yeah, uh, and and I know you and I have talked about this many times over the years, and the company has grappled with this as ticket price has had to increase and finding ways within a business model to run a not-for-profit theater company still allow for a certain number of tickets to be made available for people who might not be other, you know, able to afford the standard ticket price. I think this is something that is a is a huge problem uh, in in our country, and I'm assuming in the UK. Is how, you know, this big question: who is theater for, and how do we make it accessible to all? Part of the problem now is that you know, take a city like Chicago, where Looking Glass lives. The city itself is quite segregated, both in terms of race and also in terms of, you know, economically. And theater has become, unfortunately, something that is more and more consumed by uh, people who can afford it as a kind of kind of luxury. So there are several, you know, forces at play here, and as we've seen both, I think, in New York on Broadway, but also uh, a not-for-profit company like ours in Chicago, the audiences have been skewing more and more white, more and more older than 40, probably older than 50. And and it's, it's just a really frustrating situation because... You want to be making plays that will respond to the entire community, not just a small uh, segment of that community. The flip side of that is, you, you, I think because there's so much more content available for people to see, so much more choice out there, people are going to be more drawn to stories that reflect their particular lives. So... For instance, for Looking Glass to draw in and and kind of attract, let's say, uh, a larger Latino demographic, it would be, it could be argued that it's it, we should be telling more stories about the Latino experience. The biggest enemy for the theatre, the biggest problem for the theatre, uh, Peter Brook has said this for forty years, is is ticket prices. There's, there's a strong argument to say that theatre should be free. 
But economically, that's quite tricky, I guess. What's important to know about the National, where I'm an, I'm an associate director of the National Theatre, uh, so I have some understanding of the way Rufus Norris, who's the artistic director, has quite boldly and I think rightly gone about it. Um, and, you know, another of my colleagues there is a guy called Cobner Holbrook-Smith, who's one of the founders of Act for Change, which is a campaign group in the UK art scene for diversity. And the, the way that we've begun, we actually just announced that we've achieved these targets, is that they, they set targets. So it's 50-50 between men and women in terms of directors and writers on all our main stages, which we've achieved. And it's 30% BAME uh, on, on, as actors and creatives as well. Across the, across the board. What that's done is that that said, look, there's a historical injustice and a historical failure. There are people who have a position of power that need to give some space and there needs to be active measures put in place to acknowledge the, the, the inherent bias that exists in the power structures that govern the theatre industry like many other industries. And the results have been beyond energising for the theatre industry, uh, for the UK. I mean, the programme now at the National is... It's so much... It's a much better place to be for everybody because it's a much more... It's a very, there's a very strong kind of atmosphere there now. And there's still so much more work to be done. But um, it's improving. It's a situation that is improving in the UK in terms of diversity, in terms of... But I think that really comes from artistic leadership as well. And that's the next step. Is, is that the people that run the organisations, we need more people of colour running organisations across the board. We need more women running organisations. In the UK, this is changing for the better. And, you know, for someone like me, I mean, I, I say this and I kind of, I feel like right now, for example, it's not necessarily the time for, for another white guy to run an organisation in the UK right now. I, I think that's important to, to, to acknowledge. You know, I, I just want to say, like, Beyond Caring was, for me, one of the, the highlights of any any theater I've done um, or been a part of. Um, I didn't act or direct, but I was, I feel so lucky to have uh, co-produced that with Looking Glass because I think what that play accomplished, not just um, artistically in terms of Alex's adaptation for the States and exploring the lives of temp workers and refocusing his, the lens of that, particularly on race, be, uh, African-American experience and the Latino experience in Chicago, um, and how the race, you know, races are pitted against each other by employment, by employers, rather. Um, I, but I was equally proud of and excited by the fact that there was so much community engagement um, that we all... Uh, really, truly worked with different parts of the community, with the, the temp temp workers themselves being able to every night allot a certain number of tickets set aside for free to bring temp workers into the space to see themselves and their lives reflected on stage. And in many cases, it was the first play they'd ever seen in their lives. I would argue that every single production budget should include this as a, as a standard, as 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 much as as much a, a core part of a production budget should be um, the opportunity for people to see the show for free, and the opportunity to bring in people that need 
support to come and see the show, which be that transport, be that, you know, even money, some financial support to go and see a show so they can take the time off work. So theatre should be an essential part of social life. And uh, sometimes that does mean that we do need to, we need to sacrifice other things in order to allow that. It's, it's a kind of target thing again. And I do think that that's a, that is a way of thinking about life is to have, you know, certain rules that you have to, you have to follow. Weirdly, I think that after the coronavirus pandemic, this is going to be the time for, in my opinion, I mean, what do I know? But my, my guess is that the only real chance we have is, is boldness, uh, is ambition and, and, and radical ideas that are going to, that are going to, that are going to get traction because we can't just go on as we did before. We need to find another, we need to find another, another way of inspiring and another way of, of, um, of thinking about the future, because we need to invent our own future. We can't just rely on a future that we took for granted, because it's, it's, um, it's obvious from this example that we've just been through and we're all going through, which, by the way, let's be clear, this pandemic is disproportionately affecting people of colour, people in poverty, doctors, you know, that are people on the front line that, are not, that have been neglected. And when we're talking about the doctors, we're neglecting to talk about the porters, the cleaners, the, the you know assistance to the clean the operating theatres, the, the people that are involved in, in, in the day-to-day -day key work that keeps this society together, that in my country at the very least, much worse in your country, have been brutalised. And they've been brutalised so that people like us can leave, lead pleasant lives because that's the way the system has, has been done. So we need to activate our imagination in order to find another model that will inspire another way of thinking about reality, because the reality as we know it can't continue. Granted, we don't know what theatre is going to look like post-pandemic. I don't anyway, um, at least not any time in the near future. But um, do, we, do, do, do you feel like theatre can help bring about the change you're talking about? You're asking me. Um, Either, both. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yes is the answer. Uh, I think so. I think that the the truth is, I come back to kind of where we started. I mean, I think that you know, theatre weirdly is it's not enough. You know, it never will be. It's not enough. Theatre isn't theatre isn't necessarily a political force, but it is. Uh, it is a, a, a field of activity in which we can be. If we can. It's our professional field. It's where we devote our energy, our life force, and uh, it's 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 the space where we can we can construct a way that we want to see the world even if it's just for the, our community and the way we want to share it with our audiences, um, that, that, the level on the way we operate, the kind of morality that we operate with ourselves and the way we make work, the way we share work, the way we, the way we, what we produce ourselves has to, be, has to reflect the change that we want to see. I'm not, I don't think it's so much that theatre is going to, like, we're going to put on a play and it's going to change everything. But, but I, think it, I think it's more incremental than that and it's more about an individual... What we've seen here is, you know, there's a beautiful message that Laurie Anderson was sharing around, which was um, about her, her, you know, I, I don't know how, I don't think it's that private, but anyway, she was sharing on this newsletter that I was part of that was about the building she was in, in New York, and someone had left a note on the wall saying that, you know, we say there's no love in the world, this empty streets, these silences, these acts of consideration. It's one big act of love, this silence. And, you know, this is simply changing the way we see this opportunity to, to, to look afresh. Um, that's our task as theatre makers, is to, is to stimulate the imagination. It's already quite a big job. <laughs> Even in the best of times, yeah. I've been thinking about what kind of play I would want to go see in this, for the first 
time I'm in the theater again. Yeah. After, let's say. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's let, let's say yeah. a year or or more of this shit uh, of this <laughs> this <laughs> this time we're in with the co- you know this COVID world um, and not being able to assemble, not being able to sit next to each other in a space and and uh, experience you know, experience a play together or any kind of performance together or a sporting event. I, first of all, I think it's going to be a deeply moving experience for all of us uh, or for many of us, I should say. Certainly for me, the idea of finally being able to do one of the things I love most, which is <laughs> to see a play with a group of strangers. I think we can't underestimate the toll this is going to take and is already taking on all of us emotionally. Um, I think uh, we are all grieving and I think it's a collective grief that it's slightly easier if you're not living alone, but um, only slightly, only slightly, yeah. And um, I think that it's going to be... just quite, quite important and quite meaningful when, when people uh, are able to be in the room together again. Um, uh, quite cathartic. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that uh, it's, it's going to be so necessary when we come, if we come out of this in some way, to, to, to acknowledge this, the, the, the suffering, acknowledge the, 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 the wound and that that requires a, a kind of kindness and a kind of um, sympathy again. That the theatre is 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 that is that is a role for the theatre. And if the role of the theatre is to offer a place where people come and there's no play, but they just come and they're together, and there's a bit of music or some small action and small moments that allow us to 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 to, to revisit that. I think people are going to want to laugh. By the way, Schwimmer, I I I know that you have always, um, at least when I think of even productions like The Jungle, you know, which was about the meatpacking industry um, up in Sinclair's The Jungle and the horrors of that, but you deli- very consciously and deliberately injected, um, you know, sort of clowning and farcical moments in there and humor. Um, same thing with race, Stud Struggle's race, same thing even in Trust, which was quite grim um, content. Uh, certainly, obviously, Plantation is a comedy. Why do you feel like humor is a successful um, access or means of access to people's hearts and minds? Like. How- why does it work? Uh, I think because it's a great equalizer. Um, I think, I think, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people find the same things funny, um, and I've also found that uh, you know it's a great icebreaker when when you're trying to deal with serious topics and 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 quote unquote heavy material. Um, I I find. You know, when you get people to laugh, something happens, I think, chemically um, as well. Uh, their body starts to relax more. They become more receptive to an idea once they've, once they've laughed at something. Um, I also think that there's something that happens in, in, in a, a space that you're surrounded by strangers. There's a certain tension there. And when 
you start to hear other people laugh behind you and around you and in front of you and next to you. Something happens to us, I think, as, as human beings where we just, we, we start to relax and start to um, want to join in. I think you want, you, I think you naturally want to be part of the part of the fun. I think that's a kind of a human <laughs> um, experience and need is um, I think we we have a, a very real need to laugh and to experience pleasure and to to exp- experience joy. And so when you hear other people laughing, you kind of want to play along and you want to be part of it. You want to be in on it. So if you take a play like Race, which you named, which is really dealing with the deep, deep pain of racism and prejudice and bias and and um, I, I think that in order to get to the place um, that we are really, you know, wanting to each audience member to, to really feel what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes, particularly someone of another race whose experience is very different from yours. I think using laughter as a way in is critical, um, whether it's you're laughing at a kind of emotional experience they're having, emotional pain or physical pain, but there's something that uh, is kind of universal about um, uh, the, the laugh that comes from uh, pain. And especially when you're in a community like an audience, I think it's, it helps a lot. I wonder what you think from your experience, like working as in, in comedy is that search for the precision of the funny, of the funny, the search for what makes something funny. And that, that drilling down of it is a, is a great skill, which any, any, any real skill in theater work, be that ballet or buto or, 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 or comedy, <laughs> that particular kind of comic acting that comes from, you know, I guess, um, the kind of work you've done, be that on the TV or even in the theatre as well. Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> You're talking now as an, as an actor or director. Yeah, I'm just uh, curious. I mean, what... interested to hear you speak about that because I think that's something that you, you're interested in, I've observed. That, that you're, super, you're super precise, basically. And He's quite good at Yeah, you're pretty good, yeah. All right, thanks, guys. But, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think it's... It's got to be as precise as math. The real discipline is, I think, as an actor, is just playing the moment, just being in the moment, playing, playing the scene, truthfully, honestly, without anticipating. And that, too, that brings us much. back to the question around safety in the theatre, because safety of you know, consensus and comfort is so antithetical to, to, to the way of making theatre well, I think. I think that actually a lot of the time, I, I, what helps actors, is, in my experience, is, is this sense of purpose and this sense of doing something, an awareness of, of doing something that isn't about yourself. And the great gift of theatre is we give ourselves to something that isn't us. And that's, that's so precious because, it, it, first of all, it makes us feel like we're part of something bigger and reminds us we're not alone, which is what David was saying earlier about comedy. And I love that, what you said about we recognize it means that we don't feel alone gentlemen 
Thank you so much for coming Thanks. to the Infinite Room and spending so much time here. I really, really appreciate it. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Me too. Me too, Andy. As we were talking about Looking Glass's 2017 production of Beyond Caring, you may have heard us mention the Chicago Workers Collaborative, an organization that Looking Glass partnered with for that production, and they are the focus of our community partner shout-out this week. The Chicago Workers Collaborative organizes and advocates for temporary laborers and other low-income workers, often in factories and warehouses, to protect against wage theft, discrimination, worker injuries, and sexual harassment, and to win dignity and safe and fair working conditions for all. We've been in partnership with them since 2016, initially around Beyond Caring, but also since then, Looking Glass has brought teaching artists in residency working with their temporary laborers to create theater pieces that reflect their working conditions and generate strategies and solutions to the obstacles they face. We're going to talk with them in a future episode of The Infinite Room, and we'll hear about how the publicity and buzz around Beyond Caring actually did help build support for legislation, which was passed by the Illinois legislature. But in the meantime, please check out all the good work that they do at chicagoworkerscollaborative.org. Thanks. We also want to give a shout-out to one of our sponsors who makes this and all of our work at Looking Glass possible, BMO Harris. They're great supporters of so many community organizations across Chicago, and they've been supporters of Looking Glass for many years now. And all of us in the company are proud, honored, and grateful for their continued support. And if you like what you heard today and are inspired to make a donation to Looking Glass, well, you know, who are we to say no? You can do so at lookingglasstheater.org, and you should go there anyway just to check out all the cool online offerings we have for your entertainment, learning, and pleasure while we're all sequestered at home. Our artistic director is Heidi Stillman. Our executive director is Rachel Fink. Audio engineer is Stephanie Senior, and our theme music is by Rick Sims. Please check out the Looking Glass website, lookingglasstheater.org, to find out about our next episode of The Infinite Room and other ways that you can stay in touch with the Looking Glass family. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time, and in the meantime, stay healthy, strong, and powerful. Mm-hmm.